0: You're listening to Reach MD, XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, your host, and with me today is Dr. Mary Fabry, Clinical Psychologist and Director of Torture Treatment Services and International Training, Marjorie Kovler Center of Heartland Alliance, Chicago, Illinois. Today we'll be discussing torture and its medical implications. Thank you very much, Dr. Fabry, for joining us. Thank you. Could you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Marjorie Kovler Center.
1: Sure. You know, the Marjorie Kovler Center was founded 20 years ago this year, and it was in response to the identification of a need in the Chicagoland area. And it was really a synergistic occurrence because medical providers, clinical psychologists, attorneys, human rights activists, we're all discovering at the same time that there was a special needs population and torture survivors seeking asylum, seeking medical care, seeking mental health care here in Chicago.
0: How long have you been there? It's
1: 20 years.
0: <laughs> did you think you were going to be there 20 years and how did it come to be?
1: The program at Kovler is unique in that we utilize pro bono professionals. So in the beginning in 1987 Kovler had three staff clinical psychologist who provided the clinical coordination. We had an administrative coordinator and then a volunteer coordinator. So I became one of the, I think there were about six of us, of clinical psychologists who formed the clinical committee. And if you think about it, torture isn't something that is addressed in our education as a clinical psychologist, as a medical physician. We don't get classes on that kind of trauma. So this was new to all of us and presented with some pretty unique issues or challenges. Working with an interpreter, working with severe trauma, that in thinking about a torture survivor who may be seeking political asylum, there's very serious implications for wanting to be able to provide a orderly, sequential organized testimony of what happened. And if you think about torture and defense mechanisms that people may utilize to protect themselves from being overwhelmed by the memories and the psychological pain, it's in direct conflict. It creates a tension. So as we began doing this work, none of us had any training in it. It was new for all of us. We formed this clinical committee, Um, We met monthly and went over cases. How do you work with interpreters? How do you understand the cultural meanings of pain, of other defense mechanisms? All this was new to us. But no, certainly when I volunteered 20 years ago, I had no idea that it would become my life's work. Could you just
0: define torture for us? because we all use it in so many different ways.
1: Most of the torture treatment programs in the United States, including us at Kovler, use the United Nations definition of torture. So it indicates that any methods, whether it's physical or psychological, that is intentionally used to inflict pain and suffering that is cruel and inhumane, for the purposes of eliciting confessions or information or punishing or silencing, really interrupting political expression, is torture. It happens under the color of law. It's either by governments or by government-affiliated but not officially government or perhaps counter-government guerrilla groups, groups that the government chooses not to control or cannot control. So it's under a color of law that there's an authority in the use of torture.
0: So where torture, slavery, or rape are considered crimes, that we're not discussing right now. We're discussing where these kinds of things are used almost as a political tool.
1: Torture used to induce someone into slavery or torture used in childhood abuse or in domestic violence. Right. It's against the law. It's a criminal activity. That isn't to say that torture by governments (laughs) isn't criminal. It is. It's a crime against humanity and a crime in international law. But governments use it to control people, to disrupt movements. So there's a different purpose as well.
0: Are there other centers like yours Across the United States?
1: Currently, here we are in 2007, there are 30 different torture treatment programs. Um, When we started, that was not the case.
0: Are they in some geographical distribution?
1: They actually exist in 20 different states.
0: If you're just joining us, you're listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Maurice Pickard, and our guest today is Dr. Mary Fabry. We're discussing torture and its medical implications. The people that come to your clinic, how are they referred to you?
1: It's interesting because here we have 20 years of experience. In the beginning, we had to do a lot of outreach. The Heartland Alliance is a large social service agency that's been a part of Chicago for more than 100 years now. And within its umbrella, there's another program, which is... Currently, it's just had a name switch. It's the National Immigrant Justice Center, which is, in a way, a sister program in that they find pro bono attorneys for asylum seekers that are torture survivors, but there's other reasons you can get asylum. But we collaborate with them around torture survivors. So often, referrals may come from an attorney through this other program, or it may come from immigration attorneys. But in the beginning... Back in 1987, we had to do outreach to communities that we knew had been impacted by torture. So the Vietnamese community, the Cambodian community, the Central American communities. So there was outreach, there was attorneys, sometimes medical settings, physicians, and especially the county board clinics would identify issues related to torture, like severe depression, depression. But currently, it's interesting because we've seen a shift. We still certainly do get referrals from attorneys in medical settings. But half of our referrals now come from current clients, former clients, or the ethnic communities themselves.
0: How many clients are you now seeing and have you seen in the 20 years you've been in existence?
1: If you can imagine, in the beginning when we had three paid staff and everything was done pro bono, we started out with small numbers. And today, 20 years later, with increased funding, we've been able to expand our staff. We have 10 staff, and we have a network of more than 100 volunteers who help provide services. In our last fiscal year, we saw 350 torture survivors. So it's shifted from, you know, maybe 20 to start out to 350, and probably over the 20 years. You know, we've seen about 1500
0: Where are you getting your funding?
1: Uh, Multiple sources. You know, when we started, we got our startup money from the Kovler Foundation. They continue to support our work. Peter Kovler often says it's the best investment he's ever made, and we do see the Kovler family name throughout Chicago. So we're grateful to them. In addition, we are a beneficiary of money that comes from the Torture Victims Relief Act, which is granted through awards from the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Um, That's a huge funding source. That's really the source that has allowed the development and growth of more centers, and it's a very important funding stream for all of us.
0: Earlier, you mentioned the word immigrants. Can all immigrants come to your clinic, or do they have to be refugees, go through some type of legal process so that they can be declared somebody who who is a torture survivor?
1: We provide services to torture survivors. That has included American citizens. It has included immigrants. It has included refugees. And it includes those seeking political asylum. I would say that most of our clients are seeking political asylum because under immigration law, if you're a political asylee, you do not have a legal status other than this pending application. So you do not access benefits, health care, no medical card, no housing assistance, no public assistance. Where refugees who come in through the State Department and are referred to resettlement agencies, they have the ability to access a medical card, and public assistance for a limited amount of time, but time that helps them adjust to being here. So, you know, one of the niches that I think we've found in particular in Chicago is that we assist, for the most part, asylum seekers, those individuals who have found the opportunity to It's not actually found. The opportunity presents itself often through somebody knows somebody who bribes the prison guard who looks the other way, and they're smuggled out of a prison cell. I can't tell you how many times people describe these incredible experiences where they've been in prison, they've been tortured, they're held under conditions of deprivation and severe trauma, and then suddenly one night the cell door opens... And they're like, oh, no, they're coming for me again. But instead, someone they know, whether it's a family member or someone from their organization that they'd been working with, comes in, puts them in a burlap bag, throws them in the trunk of a car, and smuggles them out because they were able to bribe them. One of the differences we see with the asylum seekers is that they come as an individual. That moment presented itself. They're given a ticket, they often, an airplane ticket, they often don't know where they're going. If they come to Chicago or another city where there's a torture treatment program, they might be lucky enough to be um, referred to them. So that happens, where when we see refugees come in, they're resettled and they often come in community um, and often come with families intact, where an asylum seeker, for the most part, comes alone, has left family behind and isn't a beneficiary of any assistance. What
0: countries are you seeing?
1: We've seen a shift over the 20 years. When we first started doing this work, it was predominantly Southeast Asian and Central Americans. It was the 80s and the conflicts in Central America were going on. The peace accords hadn't been signed. We saw a shift begin in the mid to late 90s as the peace accords were signed in Central America What we've seen starting in the mid-90s is an influx of asylum seekers from the continent of Africa.
0: Coming from such an unusual or such a different culture than Chicago, in the Midwest in particular, do you find that your clients find it difficult? There's a quality of shame. What did they do wrong to cause the torture? that may prevent them from opening up to the therapist?
1: Lots of times you have to think about how do you engage someone from a different culture? And, you know, typically, the countries we're seeing people from, they don't have a well-developed mental health system or even healthcare system. We had one gentleman from Angola who laughed at the question, when was the last time you saw a doctor? And he laughed and said, You're obviously not familiar with my country. I've never seen a doctor.
0: I want to thank Dr. Mary Fabry. She's been our guest, and we've been discussing torture and its medical implications. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and you've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.